Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're currently in chapter 6, verse 1. Hi there, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today. Let's begin reading, why don't we, in verse 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, where it says this, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, and the satraps, and the high officials, and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petitions three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, 
Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So we find here in the first part of chapter 6, we'll, we'll get to the second part of chapter 6 in the second half of this episode, but uh, we find here that uh, this next story, and this is the story of the den, the lion's den, that is uh, so popular in uh, Sunday school classes and every place else, uh, perhaps even well-known in lots of different places, of uh, Daniel in the lion's den and uh, him being delivered. So this is a familiar story, of course, but I want you to notice that uh, there is a certain pattern of literature here in chapter 6. It begins with the prologue in verses uh, 1 through 5. Then there is this conspiracy that's hatched in verses uh, 6 through 9. Then there is an entrapment and that happens in verses uh, 10 through 13, an intervention that the king tries to make uh, in verses 14 through 18. And then there is the rescue that uh, the king couldn't, uh, couldn't rescue Daniel, but God did. That verses, uh, verses uh, 19 through 24, there is this proclamation or declaration that the king signs later in verses 25 to 27. And finally, verse 28 is a sort of an epilogue. And that's the sort of general idea of the schematic, you might say, of chapter 6 of Daniel. So, we realize that Darius is the Mede, and the Medes and the Persians have taken over the palace, taken over the kingdom of Babylon. Of course, the, the Persian Empire had already established itself as a stronghold, and, and with the uh, strength as well of the armies of the Medes, then uh, the Medes and the Persians were practically undefeated, and that meant they took over Babylon. They strategically um, diverted the Euphrates River so that the soldiers could crawl in and, and get in under the wall of the city of Babylon and completely take over. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 5 and verse 40 that uh, Daniel records in almost kind of a matter-of-fact way that uh, that same night, verse 30 of uh, chapter 5, that same night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was slain. So uh, Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now this, this has a date to it, even in uh, uh, secular history, you might say, uh, October the 13th, 539 BC, in which this event took place. And we know that this is significant as well because of the shift, the change of empires from the golden empire of Babylon to the silver empire of the Medes and the Persians in the original statue vision that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had in the interpretation that Daniel gave to it. And he only gave a brief sentence that an, uh, an a kingdom inferior to you, Nebuchadnezzar, was going to take over. Well, now it has occurred, and that kingdom is now uh, taken over Babylon, and Darius the Mede is ruling in Babylon. Babylon for the Persian Empire. And so he is setting up himself uh, 120 satraps over the kingdom. And this is the, the formal word of that day. 
and um, they are responsible for the entire kingdom. And the, these are like the bureaucrats. They're running all sorts of things, and they are impressing people with their authority as well as the authority of the king. And then there are three commissioners who are holding these 120 uh uh, satraps accountable in their function so that these commissioners are responsible uh, so that the king doesn't lose anything. Evidently, corruption and graft and, and greed and has taken over some political uh, situations. Well, that's uh, not too uncommon. That's pretty much uh, what happens uh, because human beings are still human beings. They're fallen creatures, according to the Bible, and that means they have all sorts of motives, uh, most of them selfish in uh, ruling or in governance or in in having authority over other people. And so uh, the king needed three responsible people to look over the 120 um, satraps. And so Daniel was one of those three people. And that's very fascinating that here has been a shift of this Gentile empire from one uh, um set of rules, you might say, one set of hierarchy, one set of bureaucracy in in that regard. And yet, and yet, when this shift has taken place, there is something about Daniel that is recognizable even in this new empire, this new kingdom, this new king, this new governance. Recognize that this man, Daniel, had something. And in this case, it was an extraordinary spirit of some sort. There was something about Daniel's demeanor, something about his character was able to win rapport right off the way with right out of the way uh, with this new king uh, right away is what I'm trying to say. And uh, so that's what he did. And uh, so it it was so impressive that this Jewish uh, ruler was uh, had had gained such a respect, even in this new kingdom with this new king, that uh, he was actually uh, the king himself was actually considering putting Daniel uh, over the three commissioners or over everybody else and uh, putting it all in his hands uh, because he was just that capable. So these guys devised. By the way, Daniel uh, had already established himself in the Nebuchadnezzar uh, kingdom and in his line of kings, and uh, even in that uh, final uh, Belshazzar uh, who ruled in the palace, uh, Daniel gained uh, the, the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, that position only lasted just a few hours before the Persians and the Medes came in and took over the city. But it was there, evidently, in some sort of an official statement by Belshazzar before he was killed. And, uh, and yet, so Daniel carries over this same position of respect, this same rapport with the king. And so these commissioners and satraps uh, uh, seem to be motivated by the same people, the conjurers and the Chaldeans in the previous chapters. They're motivated by the same jealousy. They don't like the fact that this guy gets a lot of attention and gets a lot of respect when they don't get respect. And uh, yet it is because of the fact that Daniel is there that uh, that. Uh, uh, kind of holds the line against their own corruption. But guess what? They come in and they want to try a conspiracy to try to peg Daniel with some sort of guilt. Well, uh, what's interesting is they 
they carry out this investigation, or at least a brief investigation, and they can't find anything wrong with his 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 uh, his ruling power or with his ability and his skills at doing what he's doing. He is completely. Uh, uh, carries out his job with integrity, complete integrity, and and so, so uh, they can't find any accusation in the New Testament. By the way, there's a word for that. It's called above reproach. That's what leadership in the church should be committed to: is doing their job above reproach. But in many regards, even a secular job, you should do it above reproach. You should do it so excellently that. The people in charge recognize your character. And yes, yes, it might mean you make other people jealous, but that's the godly thing to do. And uh, that's what uh, Daniel had been doing. And so he says, they say to each other that they're not going to find anything unless they find it against his religion. And so they go to the king and they have this injunction. They have this document. And evidently, evidently, they have already written this document. All the king has to do is write it up. Now, the uh, Medes and the Persians have a, a particular bent about uh, a rule, really. It's not just a bent. It is a, an established rule that even when the king himself has signed something into law, he can't undo that law. Even if it was his own signature that put the law in place, he can't revoke the law. That's part of the dilemma of this book, you see. And uh, of course, that's what they try to charge Daniel with. What's interesting is Daniel continues to do what he's always done, pray toward Jerusalem. There was no secret about that, that he would pray toward Jerusalem every day. In fact, it was so a part of his habit, they knew they could peg him on it and find him guilty of their injunction. So we'll be back right after this musical interlude. Welcome back, and we're going to continue on in the same chapter of Daniel. We're going to read here in verse 16 of chapter 6 in Daniel, where it says this. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, 
Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king. I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury was whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound! I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his kingdom will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Before we begin to uh, look at these passages, I want to go back just a moment or two and catch a, uh, a little detail that we may have missed, because here this whole committee of uh, conspirators against Daniel uh, are now gaining access to the king, and they give him this report uh, where it says, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, this is verse 7, by the way, of chapter 6, uh, they have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction. What's interesting is they say, all the commissioners, don't you, don't you catch that? Daniel was one of the three commissioners. And Daniel wasn't consulted about this, so they are lying from the get-go. They are lying through their teeth, even in their speech to the king, trying to sell him on signing this injunction. All the commissioners, that is not true. One out of three is still out of the picture as far as this injunction is concerned. And so uh, this is an irony of the uh, the uh, politics, you might say, of the, the hierarchy or the, the bureaucracy. The, the irony is, is that uh, this committee of conspirators were they themselves guilty of corruption, and yet they were intent upon impeaching this innocent man of corruption, or at least of defection from the king, of, uh, of disloyalty to the king, and uh, uh, tra traitorous actions, when they themselves were guilty of the utmost lies and corruption among themselves to just 
keep and hold on to their power without sharing it with this Jewish prophet. And I just wanted to pick up on that because then uh, it continues on. What's interesting is this law signed by the king, as we said before, the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked, even though it has the king's signature. The king cannot go back and say, uh, this is now revoked and add a new signature. He can't just cross it off because there's something about the, the, uh, the law of the Medes and Persians that says once it's established, even the person who signed the document cannot remove the document. He cannot revoke it. He cannot pull it back. And so the uh, the king uh, tried everything he can uh, that whole evening of trying to set this right or trying to rescue Daniel, and he just can't. So he just resolves himself that this has to be carried out. And so he doesn't does not evidently want to appear some sort of with some sort of favoritism or some sort of excuse. He still wants to be according to the law that his, he is submitted to. And uh, so because of that, he puts Daniel in the lion's den. What's fascinating is that there had been enough rapport already built with this king, Darius the Mede, this pagan king, that he understood something about Daniel's God, even at this point that he is throwing him into the cave where the lions are and sealing it up with the, his own signet ring and the signet rings of his nobles, that he understands something about Daniel's God, that sometimes even, even God's people don't understand. But this particular Jewish prophet knows it, and those around him know it. They know his God somehow Daniel has been able to convince them of certain qualities, certain theologies, even though these people may not be believers, and yet this particular Persian king understood that Daniel, your God will deliver you, uh, even though I can't. So he understood where the strength was, you see? He understood where the source of Daniel's deliverance is going to come from. It isn't even going to come from the king himself, uh, even though he's responsible, you might say. So uh, uh, he, uh, it's interesting that the king spent the night fasting. What's also fascinating is that uh, uh, it doesn't say anything about the king praying because uh, he's a pagan king. We don't know that he prayed. He, we don't know that he, he called out to the God of Daniel. He possibly did. He likely did if you kind of piece together this whole chapter, and yet it doesn't actually say that he did. It just says he fasted. Why is it important to know that this king was fasting all night for Daniel? Because that's exactly what his lions were doing. They were fasting. You see, there is that parallel between the king who owns the lions and the lions in the cave, in the den where Daniel currently is, that if the king is fasting, the lions are fasting. And it's some some sort of a, a literary kind of irony there that uh, that is uh, just fascinating to me personally. And so 
Uh, the next morning, he rushes to the cave. Doesn't that kind of remind you of the, the rush of the apostles to, to uh, Jesus' tomb the next day to see that it was open because, because that's what the women had told them. And uh, they are rushing to see the empty tomb. And uh, that's sort of like what the king is about, even though he knows nothing about an empty tomb or anything like that. But this is sort of a foretaste, you might say, of the excitement that the king had, at least at least uh, if he didn't know absolutely that Daniel was going to be released, he wants to know the answer, and he wants to know it quickly as soon as the sun was coming up. And so he rushes there, and uh, he he cried out, and and uh, he had a troubled voice, and and he he calls Daniel not only by his Hebrew name, but he calls him as the servant of the living God. Has he been able to deliver you? Well, what's interesting, the voice came from the inside, and this isn't the voice of just a survivor in the sense that uh, he stayed in, he stayed alive all day, all night long, but that he was completely untouched by the lion's claws or the lion's paws or the lion's jaws. And he and he was untouched. He was uninjured and nowhere on his body, very similar to uh, to uh, his three friends who escaped the fire in the furnace with the same kind of no injury, no mark, no smell at all. And uh, so Daniel says, don't worry, king, I'm here. And uh, he says, besides, I was innocent all along, and God has now vindicated me by delivering me. And uh, and so then the king, he uh, uh, he he basically throws the conspirators. We don't know that it's the entire uh, company of the 120 satraps, but I believe it it has to do with with at least those two commissioners who. who more than likely were the spearhead of this conspiracy and he they uh, again we have kind of a reminder that this still is a tyrant uh, uh pagan and and unscrupulous king he has uh, very few sort of uh, moral markers about him he is more about power and strength and uh, he hasn't given up his uh, violence or his uh, irrational uh Anger that interferes with with the uh, uh, with the uh, the judgment and and so uh, he is very violent and vicious when he carries out this own uh, agenda where he says he casts them their children and their wives into the den. This king does not want any argument from any uh, future adult that might grow up into adult and and be a threat to his king and to his throne and to his authority. That's the way they operated. Uh, they had no mercy, even um, uh, on the the women and the children of these commissioners. And uh, uh, that's just part of the reality that, that Daniel lived with, even in the midst of, of this king's relationship with him. And so the king issues this decree and basically declare, declares and proclaims throughout his entire empire that the God of Daniel is the one that endures forever. He is unlike all the other idols, all the other gods, that he has a kingdom and his kingdom has dominion over his own kingdom. Can you imagine this king making that proclamation that the God of Daniel has a kingdom that's bigger than me, that's higher than me, and I want you to know it. 
He rescues and he delivers and he's delivered Daniel. And that's what the entire kingdom. So this king gave a testimony of sorts in the form of this proclamation about Daniel's God, very parallel to what uh, Nebuchadnezzar might have done, although this was not necessarily a testimonial tract. It is a declaration that has uh, a rich uh, worship of the God of Daniel calling the, the uh, Medes and the Persians to worship the same God. And uh, that is a dramatic effect. It's interesting, the chapter ends with Daniel enjoying success and uh, with the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, we found out in chapter 1 was introduced by the fact that Daniel's career would last all the way to Cyrus the Persian. And this is the record right here in chapter 6, verse 28, that that is exactly what happened to Daniel. Thank you, dear Father, for these words of encouragement, these words of courage, these words of your power and your mercy in delivering Daniel and declaring and vindicating his innocence in this particular matter. And thank you, Father, that through Christ Jesus, we can find ourselves cleansed of all of our sin so that we are declared righteous in him by faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.